Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Illustrations to open up here this morning. In 1896, there was a, um, two brothers by the name of Lumiere that uh, created a film. And the film was simply 50 seconds long. And all it was was a, a train coming into the train station and stopping and they decided to show this was the first moving film picture that, that people had seen before an audience, and they showed this film. And the story goes, and I don't know the veracity of this or the truthfulness of it, but as they showed this train kind of pulling into the station, that people in the audience got afraid and started moving out of the way of the train that they thought was literally coming into the auditorium. A second illustration, in 1938, the radio theater version of War of the Worlds from Orson Welles was played over the airwaves. And it was done in such a way that it sounded like a, a news announcement. And so number of people hearing this kind of radio theater broadcast uh, started to kind of freak out that they were actually thinking that aliens were invading the world. If you think people are gullible now, just go back 100 years. It was kind of the same way. See, belief is a powerful thing. Belief is a powerful thing. True belief changes our actions so that if you believe that gravity is true, you don't throw something heavy in the air and just wait for it to not come back down. I don't, that didn't make any sense, but follow me with that one. If you believe that, that uh, fault lines and seismology is true, you don't build your house upon a fault line, Right? What we believe actually changes uh, the, the way we go about things. We live in a cause and effect world. And information changes our interactions. See, we pressed that in, into that a little bit this morning. That true belief changes us. It reorients us to the centrality of Jesus Christ. It allows our world to kind of spin around a different star, as it were. It changes our desires away from selfish things and, and redirects our desires to follow Christ, to honor Christ. And, and truthfully, this morning, anything less than that, anything less than, than that desiring change or that desire-changing faith is not saving faith. See, we've been in the book of John since January, and here we are in John chapter 3. And one theme that has arisen consistently is this issue of belief. It's right here on the surface of our text. We saw it early on in John. It, we, uh, we were called to believe. We saw that when, when we looked forward to John chapter 20, that John is writing this book for the purpose of creating belief. And we saw John or Jesus call Nicodemus to believe in him last week in John chapter 3. And it's on the face of our text here this morning. It will be on the face of so many more texts as we continue in our time in John. And here's our big idea. Jesus is to be believed on for eternal life. You say, well, duh, right? We're going to spend 45 minutes talking about this? Jesus is to be believed on for eternal life. And when we kind of dig in, we want to dig into those words, believed on. Because what I sense this morning is as we approach this text that wants to define what true belief looks like, we might find a discrepancy between what modern belief looks like and what John the Baptist exemplified and John, our author, called us to. 
See, we have this kind of cultural Christianity that we swim about in, right? We say the Pledge of Allegiance before our school day. We sing the national anthem. We sing God Bless America before sports events. We have this cultural Christian interaction. Is that what God is calling us to? Kind of this Jesus take the wheel Christianity? Well, let's dig in this morning and hear the words of our God from John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. We're going to see this in kind of two phases. First, in, in chapter 3, verses 22 through 30, we believe that Jesus is greater than John the Baptist, that Jesus is above John the Baptist, and it's going to accumulate to that phrase in, in verse 30, that he must increase and I must become less. In verses 31 through 36, then, we're going to see that Jesus is above all, that he's to be trusted as one who is above all. He brings the words from heaven, as it were. So we want to dig in this morning that Jesus is above John the Baptist. So look at John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30 this morning. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there uh, with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anan, near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he was with you across the Jordan to whom you were bore witness. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's happening here. So we start off with this kind of weird interaction. Jesus is uh, moving to this new location. And we don't really know kind of the time frame of everything that's happening. We just know that Jesus is going to this Judean countryside and that John tells us that it's after his trip to Jerusalem, but before John was in prison. And secondly, that he's baptizing there, that not really even he is baptizing so much as his disciples are baptizing. In fact, in John 4 next week, John 4, 2, we're going to see that his disciples were the ones doing the baptizing. Well, this is problematic because John was already there, according to verse 23. He was already baptizing as well. And so here you have both of them baptizing in the same area. And unfortunately, John's disciples see this kind of geographic proximity as a problem, right? And so John the Baptist's disciples describe the controversy to John in verses 25 through 26. So there's this fight that happens first, this fight between this Jew and John's disciples about this issue of purification. So John was the Baptist, right? That doesn't mean he was part of the Southern Baptist Convention, even though they might like to tell you he was. That means that he was about the act of baptizing, that he was about this idea of immersing people in water as a spiritual symbol of, of cleansing, of repentance. Meanwhile, these Jews in Jerusalem, specifically the Pharisees, like we saw last week, they were all about purification. And so they were all about hand washing and everything else. A bunch of just really clean people walking around the state of Israel, right? But you can see naturally that this is a conflict. John's baptism versus the state of purification, and there's a fight that arises, and John's disciples come to him, and they're concerned. And they express the nature of their concern in verse 26. 
Notice their complaint. Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing. And everybody's going to him. They have this concern about market share, right? There's only so many baptisms to go around, John. And Jesus is taking them all. He's taking our market from us. What's going on? That's a crass way of putting it. John the Baptist responds in verses 27 through 30. And I love this response. He gives us kind of three different uh, phases of his response. In verse 27, he's going to show us that everything he has is from God. And then in verses 28 through 29, he's going to recognize Jesus' true role and his role in relation to Jesus' role. And then he's going to make a conclusion in verse 30 that I think kind of wraps it all up nicely. So we start off in verse 27, and he says, everything John has is from God. He tells us that we can't receive anything that isn't from God. Look at what he says there. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So if you have a car, if you have a house, if you have children, those things come from God. If you have an annoying boss, if you have a car that doesn't run, if you have cancer, those things come from God. This is the uniform witness of the scriptures that James 1 tells us that every good gift, every perfect thing comes down from the Father of lights. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul challenges his recipients and he says, what do you have that hasn't been given to you? Lamentations 3, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? See, this is all over our scriptures. See, John recognizes that anything that happens comes from God. It's like the words of our hymn, right? The hymn that we sing from Samuel Rodigus that says, Whatever my God ordains is right, his holy will abides. I have to look at the words. I don't remember words very well. I will be still whatever he does, and I'll follow where he guides. See, Christian, are, are you in that place? Are you recognizing that everything that happens to you in your life is at least passing through the fingers of the Almighty God? We think about Job, right? All the bad things that happened to Job. Well, first, there was an accuser before the throne of God and the permission of God to allow those things to happen. See, anything that comes to you is from God, good or bad, increase or decrease. And John's kind of just acknowledging this to be true. Everything that he has comes from the Lord. The calling that he had to be the predecessor to the Messiah from God, the calling that he has to baptize less than Jesus is also from God. He goes on in the second half in verses 28 and 29, and he rejoices over Jesus' role. Look at what he says in verse 28. It says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. He's recognizing who he wasn't. And then he recognizes who he is. But I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. What's John saying here? He's using this analogy. He's saying it's weird when the, bride, or the best man is more about the bride than about the bridegroom. That's a strange thing. When he's more oriented around the woman than he is about his friend. It's, it's the place of the best man in the wedding to try and serve the groom and to see the groom uh, sent off with his new bride, right? 
And so John's making this analogy, and then he kind of encapsulates this, and, and at the end of verse 29 says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. See, John's saying that his joy is tied to the exaltation of Jesus Christ. It's John's joy to see Jesus baptized more than himself. This joy of mine is now complete. John's joy is full when Jesus is more prominent. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've found this to be true, like I have. That the more my life kind of swirls around the glory of Jesus Christ, the more I find myself having joy. And the more my life swirls around myself, the less stable and moody I become. See, in fact, this is John's desire stated in this conclusion in verse 30. Jesus should grow in prominence because he is preeminent. That's the statement. He must increase increase, but I must decrease. What he's saying here is it's quite simple, isn't it? Jesus is greater than him. And there's this appropriate kind of give and take that's happening as John the servant, the predecessor to the Messiah, is decreasing from the scene, and Jesus himself is becoming more prominent. See, as we step back for a second, we recognize that our service to God exists for God's purpose. You know, we had our, our um, vision night last Sunday. We said that one of the things we want to press into in this coming year is our idea of service. And here we have a servant of God who is recognizing his place in relation to God. But we tend to think the opposite is true. Our culture tends to think the opposite is true. See, John the Baptist's disciples come to him, and they have this concern. Like, you're baptizing less because Jesus is baptizing more. You're decreasing, and, and Jesus is increasing. That's not good, according to John's disciples. Today, we see that sentiment a lot. Those outside the church have kind of criticized religion to say that it exists for our purposes. So Marx said that religion is the opium of the masses, that it's kind of a creation in ourselves to kind of help us get along and cope with a, a world that seems broken and is hard, right? And even within the church, we, we find those that say our Christian faith is primarily about us. We speak of the cross as the affirmation of our value, not the statement of our guilt. That God loved us because we were lovable, not because he was loving. We tend to think that our purpose is God's purpose rather than the other way around. See, the truth is that, that God is primary, and we are meant to be secondary. And so John the Baptist knows his role. He understands that Jesus must increase, that he must become less, that this is a fundamental expression of his belief in Christ. He is sent before Christ, but he's not over Christ. And when Christ ascends, he descends. When Christ increases, he decreases. You and I, every morning we wake up and we decide, does my Christian faith make me a master or a slave? Servants decrease for the glory of Christ. They realize that the best thing for this world, for their family, for their life is more Jesus and less of me. There was a, a radio host, a uh, sports talk guy. His name was Jim Rome. You've probably heard him. I think he's still on to this day. 
but he always had this phrase, and he would kind of get arrogant and cocky, and he would talk to people, and he'd say, less of you and more of me is a good thing. In Christ, we say the opposite. Less of me, more of Christ. That's what we want to see. See, just like last week, what happens next is that John, our author of this gospel, wants to make comment on what's just happened. And so this next section we're going to see in verses 31 through 36 is John, the author of this gospel, not John the Baptist, but John himself, the author, making comment on what John the Baptist has just stated. It's like he wants to kind of hit the pause button and kind of pull out the nuance of what John has just stated said to us. And so what we see is not that Jesus is above John the Baptist, as we've seen in this first section, but Jesus is above everyone. There's no one here that can manipulate Jesus's agenda for the earth, that all of us are in some ways subdued to his lordship. Look at verses 31 through 36. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, excuse me, but the wrath of God remains on him. See, Jesus is to be received like he's from heaven. This is what we see in these verses, in verses 31 through 33. He describes, John describes that Jesus is like one who's from above. That's what he says. He who comes from above is above. He's from earth, speaks like one who speaks from the earth. Like if you're from Ohio, you use the word pop right? You speak like that. Or if you're from the South or wherever else, you use the word soda. Or if you're one of those weird people from different parts of the South, you call everything Coke, which doesn't make any sense to me. We do this. We speak like where we're from. Jesus himself spoke like he was from heaven. He spoke of heavenly things. In fact, we saw this when he was speaking to Nicodemus last week in verse 13 of chapter 3. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is uniquely from heaven, and he speaks with knowledge that only he himself will know. So therefore, his testimony is to be received. In verses 32 through 33, we see uh, this word received used twice. It's first used in this negative in verse 33. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. And then it turns right around in verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. John's setting it before us this morning saying, if you believe or if you don't believe, here's why you believe or why you don't believe, and here's the consequences of this belief or unbelief. See, on that basis of of belief that Jesus is from above, his word is to be received, but also on the basis that he's foreign to us, that he's from above, his word is often rejected, right? We find kind of a, a complicated string of things here stated by John. John's point is that Jesus tells us things we couldn't know in any other way. Therefore, he's to be listened to. So John's going to restate this in verses 34 through 36, just in a different way. In verse 34 through 35, Jesus uh, is to be believed uh, like the Father himself. 
He bears unique relation to the Father. He says in verse 34, for, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Did you notice kind of the Trinitarian interactions that's happening here? Jesus is speaking the words of God because he's been endowed with the Holy Spirit. That as Jesus was baptized at the beginning of his ministry, as we see in the other Gospels, he's endowed with the Holy Spirit and he speaks the words of God. Later on in John 14, Jesus is going to tell us that he goes back to the Father and he's giving to us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will remind us of Jesus's words that came from the Father. So there's this Trinitarian interaction that we are invited to. Verse 35, he goes on and he describes it again. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Jesus is to be believed because the Father has entrusted him with everything. Do you remember Matthew 28, 19? Jesus tells us that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, that he's got control of everything. Paul will say it later. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. There's nothing outside of the palm of Jesus' hand that he controls everything. And because of that, Jesus is to be received, to be believed upon. Verse 36 is what he says. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Brother or sister, if you're here this morning, you've believed upon the Lord of Jesus Christ, you've believed upon his death and his resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, you possess eternal life. Right now, you are living in the eternal life that God has given to you. You live in a state of blessing before God's throne because God has given you the righteousness of Christ and he's taken upon Jesus, our own sinfulness. But look at what he goes on to describe in verse 36. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you're here this morning and you have not placed faith in Jesus, what the Word of God tells us this morning is right now the wrath of God is hovering over you. And that at the moment of, of your death, when you step into uh, your eternity at the day of judgment that will come in the future, you will be under the wrath of God. You will be deserving of the fires of hell. life and death consequence here this morning, isn't it? And we don't want to take the edge off of the seriousness of this statement from John. To Jesus is to be believed upon. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe, the wrath of God remains on him. See, the truth is this morning that our unbelief or our belief sets our heading for either eternal damnation or eternal life. What we believe right now about Jesus and what we believe at the end of our days about Jesus Christ sets the trajectory for, for what will happen to us in eternity. There's a direct link between how you think and submit to the Lordship of Jesus now and what will happen to you in the future. You've got to stop and you just got to ask why, right? We're 21st century people. We're modern. We're smarter than this, right? 
Isn't that the sentiment we hear so often about religious claims? Oh no, we've, we've kind of evolved beyond this. We, we know better than this. See, our modern age wants to be open to all belief. And, and so we have this kind of uh, transcendent uh, value of being open-minded, right? And this claim doesn't seem very open-minded, doesn't it? It all hinges upon what you think about Jesus. And when you believe upon Jesus, you have eternal life. And when you don't believe upon Jesus, you do not have eternal life. Chesterton said this interesting quote. He said, an open mind is like an open mouth. It's meant to close on something, right? Like right now, I'm thinking about lunch. I want my mouth to close upon something, right? We have to make a decision. We have to orient ourselves to the claims of Jesus himself. We have to make a decision whether we agree with Jesus as he presents himself or whether we will kind of selfishly kind of reshape Jesus like we want him to be or maybe just reject Jesus altogether. Notice even here in in John 3, John sees our problem in verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. See, we had the very Son of God in our midst, and his testimony, the words that he spoke, the, the true and flawless truth that he gave to us was not received. See, the scandal of this isn't that Jesus spoke in terms that we couldn't understand. He didn't speak too high and lofty claims. He didn't use uh, analogies and, and things that we couldn't get our hands around. Jesus was rejected because he spoke truth plainly. Specifically, he spoke truth about himself that led to his rejection. If we were to kind of fast forward through the the book of John, we would see the following interactions happen. Well, we already saw in John chapter 3, when Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again and that he has to believe upon Jesus for eternal life, Nicodemus's response to him in verse 9 is, how can these things be? If we were to fast forward to John chapter 6, Jesus tells people that if they want to, to live forever, they have to eat his, his flesh and drink his blood. Now, Obviously not literally, but figuratively. They have to believe upon him. And the crowds respond, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus claims that he and the Father are one. He's talking about the heavenly things that he knows. And in John 10, 31, the Jews pick up stones to stone him. See, time and time again throughout our gospel, we'll find a claim of Jesus, the rejection of people moving closer and closer to the day of his death. So the question is, what does this faith look like? <laughs> this faith on Jesus, what, what does it consist of? Lots of people claim faith today, don't they? Back in the 90s, there was a, a document put out. Uh, it was a kind of a collaboration between uh, the Catholic entities and the Protestant entities, and it was called uh, Evangelicals and Catholics Together. And the idea was to kind of bridge this gap that's existed for century, centuries, centuries, oh my goodness, centuries between Evangelicals and Catholics. And the problem was that uh, when it came to that fundamental definition of the word faith, we meant different things. See, that's the problem we have now is what are we describing as saving faith? 
what do we understand actually saves us from our sinfulness, gives us the grace, gives us access to grace in Christ. There's many today that will claim faith and, and claim that they understand and trust in Jesus, but they have a, fundamentally a very different understanding of who Jesus is and who the Father is and who we are and, and all of those things. See, we tend to forget that this passage isn't too far removed from what we just read last week. And last week, whether we realized it or not, Jesus preached the gospel to Nicodemus. Jesus preached the gospel to a Pharisee that he had just met. He, in the face of kind of this legalism, in the face of this misunderstanding about religion, about how to be right with God, Jesus preached this in verse 13. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That Jesus is unique, that he's preexistent, that he knows all things, that he will exist forever, that Jesus is himself God. That's how John started our gospel, right? The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus himself has always existed. And in verse 14, he goes on to unpack. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus would, as the Son of God, be lifted up in his death as a sacrifice for sins, that he would draw sinners to himself. And then in verse 15, he says that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, that Jesus is the only means of eternal life, that his substitutionary death and his powerful resurrection actually pay for our sinfulness and give us eternal life in Christ. It's the content. See, if we're to have eternal life, this is what it is to believe in Jesus or receive Jesus' testimony, as verse 33 says. It means denying our own belief that we want to think about ourselves, that I'm okay on my own, or that God will simply overlook my sins. It fundamentally trusts that what Jesus says is true and that it shapes the direction and heading of our life. So this issue of belief right here, even to the point that Jesus or John describes what belief is in verse 33. It says, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. That phrase, set our seal, is a word picture. The modern day equivalent would be like signing something, right? Of course, it's kind of lost its way as we do all these digital signings and everything else now which I always find to be a pain, but anyway. When you put your signature on something, it's saying you approve of it. You, you bank upon it. You uh, claim the veracity, the truthfulness of it. And so John, John is saying when we set our seal to something, we set our seal to this idea that Jesus himself is the true sacrifice for sins. See, John has written this section in such a way uh, that we see verses 31 through 36 describe what this faith looks like and the necessity of the faith. But the early part shows us an example of what that faith looks like. It's not just this mental assent that we would uh, believe upon something, and it wouldn't affect the, the tone and shape of our life. It would claim, verse 30 as well, that Jesus must increase and I must decrease. See, remember, belief is powerful to change us. And if we have genuine faith in Jesus, it should change the way we live, the way we think. 
should change the trajectory of our, our life. We should find ourselves desirous of Christ's increase and of our decrease in faith. See, we might step away from this and say, this is all very theoretical. What does this mean for us? You know, as we kind of press into this year, we want to try and be those who are sharing our faith with others. We want to recognize that a regular rhythm of a believing Christian should be to witness to the veracity, the truthfulness of Jesus. And as we call people to faith in Jesus, we must all call people to real belief in Jesus Christ. We also have to have real belief in Jesus Christ. What does that real belief look like? There's a few different kind of movements that are happening right now that we just recognize that aren't genuine faith. Mental assent. This idea that I just kind of would sign the doctrinal statement, as it were, that I, I kind of agree. Jesus uh, died on a cross to forgive sins. We see a lot of this today. We see a crisis, crisis Christianity. I remember uh, my wife, uh, when we were first married, she worked at a, a temp agency, and she was uh, working at this individual with a, another person there. At a, I don't even remember what she was doing, but this person had this crisis, and she was describing kind of this, um, this moment of crisis because she needed to pay an electric bill or something else. She's highly emotional. She's kind of working through these, and she's trying to describe this religious moment, and we're saying, that doesn't sound like faith in Jesus. It's this Jesus take the wheel Christianity that I'm the driver 90% of the time, but when the cancer diagnosis shows up or the rent needs paid, that's when I want to turn to Christ. Is that genuine faith? What about these expressions of cultural Christianity? We put our hands over our heart and we sing God bless America. We do well, or pledge allegiance to the flag, all those things. You don't put your hand over your heart for God bless America. But anyway, we have these religious kind of civil expressions. Is that saving faith? I want to just pause and slow down in our text here for a second and just kind of pull out. What does faith really look like? Fundamentally, when we look at this and we, we see the example of faith in John the Baptist, we can say this, that faith that doesn't maximize Jesus and minimize the self, that might not be real faith. Faith should be about maximizing the person of Christ, him becoming more and me becoming less. See, our passage shows us this John the Baptist as this rich example of faith. If our belief doesn't change our self-orientation to a Jesus orientation, it isn't real faith. See, real belief is marked for us in this passage. First, it, it sees God's work as primary importance, right? John the Baptist is oriented around what Jesus is doing, the increase of Christ and his own decrease as it may be. It seeks God's agenda first and foremost and the exaltation of Jesus as more important than his own self-fulfillment. Secondly, it takes Jesus at his word. According to verse 36, it receives the testimony that Jesus gives about himself. See, as we kind of look at this passage and we step away for a second, we recognize that Jesus is the center of our faith. 
too often we reverse that. We put ourselves at the center of our faith. We, we expect that God would interact with us and bring, bring his blessing to us because of us. I, I want this, I deserve this, and God meets me with this. We orient ourselves around a very selfish expression of Christian faith that I should be happy, that I should be this or that, that I should fundamentally be fulfilled or whatever else. And we kind of push Jesus and his agenda off to the periphery of our life. This morning, what we want to do is we want to instead invite Jesus to the center to orient all of our life around the center of Jesus Christ. You can think about it this way. As you go through your week, how much of your life is oriented around the person of Jesus? Where do you change your behaviors because of your faith? Where do you avoid something because you trust Jesus in the midst of it? Where do you add something to your life because you trust Jesus? You know, when you get up in the morning and you get up early to to read the scriptures, that's a change of behavior that's in line with your faith. When you set aside your Thursday or Friday or Wednesday or whatever night for community group, for fellowship with other believers, when you get up on Sunday mornings, that's changing the trajectory of your faith because you want to see Jesus exalted. But on the flip side, if you get up on a Sunday morning because that's just what we do, if you get up early in the mornings to read the Bible because that's just what we do, maybe that's not oriented around faith in Christ. See, this morning, what we want to do is we want to have a clear understanding of what it looks like to follow Jesus and to invite others. I want to pray to that end this morning that God allows us a rich understanding of what it is to have faith in Jesus, to um, push ourselves out of the center of our life, to find Jesus at the center, and to orient our lives around him as he calls us to. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would honor your name in us and glorify yourself. Lord, our hearts are prone to wander. We are prone to put ourselves at the center of our existence, to think about what satisfies us and what doesn't satisfy us, to to push away from those things that aren't good for us or we think aren't good for us or uh, to press into those things that we think are good for us. But Father, train our hearts and our minds to put Jesus at the center of all of it, to so trust that you are working in your world and glorifying your Son. Lord, I pray that you would bless our food that we'll have together here this morning. Pray that you would bless our fellowship. Allow our fellowship to be rooted and rich in your son. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.